In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I will admit this morning, uh, the 7.30 service, I started by reading the wrong gospel. Because apparently I like last year, uh, last week's sermon better than this one. You can, you can be the judge of that. But this morning we start with the story of Job. We'll be following him over the next few Sundays. Our reading starts this morning. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now the next few verses of chapter 1 tell us Job had ten children, huge herds, and was considered the greatest man of the East, the most prosperous of the nomadic people. Now this is taking place at the same time as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The story then goes on to tell us that one day the spiritual beings were presenting themselves to God, and God asked Satan what he's been up to. And he responds, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. And then God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? And then God starts bragging on Job. And Satan replies, of course he trusts you. He knows you protect him. If you take the protection away and he loses everything, he won't follow you anymore. So God allows this to happen. And at the end of chapter 1, we read that over what seems like the course of just a very few minutes, Servant after servant comes and tells Job he's lost everything. His herds, his slaves, his children. And then it says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now our reading this morning picks up in chapter 2, and we have a repeat of that, of that story with God and Satan, only this time God seems to almost be taunting Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. Blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Now notice in Satan's response, he doesn't deny anything God said about Job. Instead, he says, skin for skin. All that people have, they will give to save their lives. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your power. Only spare his life. We read that Satan did this, bringing boils and sickness to Job. So much so that his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as a foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's wife gives him bad advice. But let's be honest, it's only the beginning of the bad advice Job's going to get in this book. In the next chapter, Job is going to spend the entire chapter lamenting what has happened to him. He's perplexed, and he wishes that God had never allowed him to be born. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, his friends come to comfort him. In fairness to his friends, the first thing they do is tear their clothing, put on sackcloth and ashes, and sit with him silently for a week in mourning. But then they open their mouths. And over the next 20 or so chapters, they start to give Job advice as to how he needs to fix this situation. And for all the rhetorical advices and chapters, yes, chapters, multiple chapters, long speeches they give, they tell him the same thing over and over again. 
Job, you've sinned. Repent, because God never allows the just to suffer harm. Ponder that for a moment. And Job's response is always, I've done nothing wrong. And then they turn and try different tactics. Job, maybe it's not a sin you've done intentionally. Maybe you've unintentionally sinned. No. Job, now you're just being self-righteous. We're all sinners. We've all made mistakes. Simply admit you're not the man you're claiming you are right now. And we know God will make it right. Because only the righteous prosper and only sinners have real problems. With friends like these, did Job really need Satan in the mix too? We'll be with Job over the next few Sundays and spend a little time unpacking these ideas about God. And we'll see how frustrated Job gets with the accusation and then how God responds to Job's friends and their understanding of God's nature and character and also how God talks to Job about his ever more strident defense of himself and not God. In Psalm 26 this morning we read David feeling just like Job did. Give judgment for me, O Lord, for I have lived with integrity. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. We don't know the circumstances of his writing this time, but we can feel it and feel that defensiveness as he's responding to whatever's going on. I've hated the company of evildoers. I will not sit down with the wicked. I'll wash my hands in innocence, O Lord, and that I may go in procession round your altar. In this instance, David feels that what's being done to him is not something he's earned. We've read other Psalms of David recently where he's cried out and admitted his sin and asked for forgiveness for it. But this morning he writes, Lord, do not wash me away with sinners, nor my life with those who thirst for blood. He's crying out, not wanting to be forgotten by God in this time of trial. But like Job, he promises, as for me, I will live with integrity. Redeem me, O Lord, and have pity on me. In our gospel this morning, we read, Some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, part of what's in play here is the Pharisees are hoping that Jesus is going to commit himself to one side of a great controversy that they've been arguing amongst themselves about for the last century or so, and thereby alienating the other side. The school of Shammai has been saying that Deuteronomy 24 means that a man may only divorce his wife in the case of adultery. The school of Halil interprets the same passage to mean that a man may divorce his wife for nearly any fault he can find in her. You burn the toast too many times, out you go. And I say that jokingly, but divorce for trivial reasons was common. The rabbis give some really interestingly petty examples as to why husbands were divorcing their wives. But note that it's only the man that's allowed to divorce his wife and not the other way around. Women are still treated as property and have few legal rights. In fact, most of the truly poor in the ancient world are widows and orphans and divorced women. Why? Because they can't own property. And even if they somehow were to get a hold of a piece of property, how can they farm it? How can they take care of it? Jesus answers, answers his disciples when they again start talking to him about it. And that answer is one the church has wrestled with over the years. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, we've talked about Jewish society. In Roman society, divorce was what today we'd call no fault. And it was common, and especially amongst the upper classes, because 
if you're in the upper classes and you have a lot of money, there's no financial problem for switching around spouses, right? Emperor Claudius, we know, was married four times and was divorced three times. Herodias, who we read about a few chapters ago in the beheading of John the Baptist, divorced her first husband, Herod II, who was her step-uncle, and married his half-brother, Herod Antipas. Marriage was not about love. It was about property and power and advantage. Given the context, I don't think Jesus is saying remarriage is of itself wrong. It's this idea that you could just divorce someone with the sole intention of marrying up. And marrying someone else so that you can move yourself up time and again is not part of God's plan. And then we read, people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter into it. And he took them in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Do you remember having a birthday party as a child? Or being invited to a classmate's party? The fun of worrying about who came and who didn't? Or... Maybe you were the only person in your fifth grade class not to be invited to a birthday party of one of your classmates. Remember those feelings? Birthday parties for children are a pretty modern invention. In the ancient world, children were of little or no class. There was no value in hosting a banquet for a child. You've gained nothing by doing it. There's no advantage to be had. So when Jesus says that the reception of God's kingdom is like embracing a child... He is asserting once again that God is not experienced in power, but in weakness and dependence on him. That the people made in God's image are simply not pawns to be played in your scheme to get a better life. Instead, we're all born to be loved by God. And entering God's family is not about asking, Jesus, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? It's a way to bring the news of God's love and to be able to minister to the least and to serve simply for Jesus' sake, and not what we're going to get out of it. I'm going to read the King James here this morning, because I like it better. I'll be honest, I find it more poetic. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. God has been speaking since the beginning of time through his prophets. But now the book of Hebrews tells us he's speaking through his son, who came to live and die as one of us, to purify us to himself, And he's now sitting at God's right hand. Just as Stephen affirms in the book of Acts, when he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And now Jesus is over everything, including the angels. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to remind Jewish Christians and all of us that Jesus and the new covenant are better than the old covenant because Jesus brings it to completion. Now, why does someone need to stop and write that? Isn't it obvious to everyone? We think the book was written during the reign of Emperor Nero. Most of us know Nero because he was playing a fiddle, supposedly, while Rome burned. He was also persecuting the church. But it's not only a time of persecution, it's also a time of Jewish victory. Starting in 66 AD, the first Jewish-Roman war began. The Roman governor of Judea had taxed the people and then plundered the temple to pay his share to Rome, 
and found himself being openly mocked in the streets. He decided to round up and arrest Jewish rabbis and priests and other leaders. He beat some of them and even crucified a few of them. This led to a series of riots and to the unprepared Roman garrisons being overrun. The Roman governor and his people and the Herods all fled for their lives. The Romans sent the Syrian army down from Damascus, and after beating a group at the, at the city of Jaffa, they lose an open battle, and their standard is taken. The Romans see their eagle taken by the Jews. And for a year or so, it seemed that the future, that all little Jewish boys and girls had grown up about hearing about Messiah, was coming to pass. The Romans were gone, and so were their taxes. Worship is restored any way they want to. There's no more Roman legions sitting in Fortress Antonia ready to come down if they don't like what's happening. And I think at this moment of triumph, when the hearts of many were likely torn between literal suffering for Jesus or going to Jerusalem and basking in the victory of it all, I'm sure many were tempted. But the writer of Hebrews starts off this morning by reminding us that Jesus is better than the angels. That even though he came in likeness as a man, his death, resurrection, ascension now has him on the right hand of the Father. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make this enemy thy footstool? In Job we see Job's wife and friends believing that God was a God simply of transactions, of sowing and reaping. That the only reason why any of us would ever suffer is that we brought it on ourselves. In Jesus' day, that same spirit was present in those who left their wives and their children to marry someone else who had more money or had more power. Thank God that we'll not be judged by the contents of our bank account or our brokerage statement when we stand before him. Jesus came to free the world from sin and death, not to free us from the Romans. He came to heal us from the brokenness of this world. He sent us to love the least, the widows, and the orphans, and everyone else who cannot take care of themselves. In our gospel this morning, Jesus promises us that we do not achieve the kingdom of God by our own maneuverings and our own posturings, but instead we receive the kingdom of God as a little child. We receive it in utter dependence on him. Amen.